0: Why did Henry VIII leave the Church of Rome, divorce Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn? Well, so far we've discovered that this had little to do with the king's love life and everything to do with his foreign policy. In
1: 1527, Henry signed a treaty with the French, ending decades of alliance with the Spanish. It meant that Catherine, his Spanish queen, and the main supporter of the Spanish alliance, had to go. Divorce proceedings started straight away. It should all have gone smoothly and Henry should have been able to marry again, probably René,
0: the French king's cousin. But then, events overtook him. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk, usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
1: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to
0: us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. In
1: 1527, Henry started his divorce from Catherine, but then events overtook him. By events, of course, we mean events in Europe. While the French and English had been making their new treaty and while Wolsey began solemnly considering Henry's case for an annulment or divorce and then travelling to France to look for a French princess, Spanish and German troops had been advancing brazenly through Italy. Charles V, King of Spain and already ruler of Burgundy, Austria and overlord of Germany, besides master of the growing Spanish empire in South America, was extending his reach yet further into the rich heartlands of Italy. They besieged Florence, which had for generations been governed by the Medici family. And They didn't take the city, but as soon as the Spanish were gone, the townsmen used this opportunity to burst into revolt
0: and threw the Medici family out. Now this turns out to be important to our story, because the current Pope, Clement VII, the one Henry would have to deal with for his divorce, was a Medici. And the Medicis had run Florence as their own private kingdom for generations. And worse was to come for poor Clement. As
1: usual, Charles V hadn't paid his soldiers and so they mutinied. They rampaged down the road to Rome and invaded the city. And what followed was tragedy. Some estimated that nearly 12,000 Roman citizens died, 2,000 of them literally thrown into the River Tiber. Well, Pope Clement scurried out of the Vatican and hid in the Castel Sant'Angelo. And there, in effect, he became a prisoner
0: of Charles V's army. Charles V, Spanish king, was a loyal Catholic and he wouldn't have chosen to pillage Rome or capture the Pope. But the situation, once it arose, did present him, shall we say, with certain advantages. With the Pope at his mercy all of a sudden, Charles found himself with a lever with which to force Henry to break his new alliance with the French. If Henry stuck with his new French allies, Charles could see to it that the Pope would not give him a divorce from Catherine. Henry wouldn't be able to seal his new alliance by marrying a French princess, or anyone else for that matter. Catherine would go on being a Spanish mole in Henry's court. So, of course, Charles put pressure on the Pope to refuse Henry's divorce. It wasn't because, as we're often told, Catherine was his favourite aunt. It was a hard-headed political decision. It was an excellent way to weaken the new anti-Spanish alliance between Henry and the French. So, Henry's request for a divorce put the Pope in an impossible position he couldn't please the French and the English on the one hand and Charles V on the other. But without Spanish help, he would probably never regain not only his freedom, but also his family's hold on Florence. It looked as though the Pope would have to choose between losing Florence forever from his family and losing England and France forever from his church. Well, Henry was also stuck.
1: Now, one obvious solution, the one that Henry would eventually take but six years later was to declare that the Pope was nothing but a puppet of the Spanish and make himself head of the church. But Henry didn't do it. Instead, as we saw last time, in July 1527, Henry started collecting together a team of theologians who would argue from arcane texts in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that popes should never have allowed Henry to marry Catherine. So was he trying to get his divorce done? Was he trying to prove that the popes had overstepped their authority and that he should break away from them? Or was he playing some
0: other game? That summer, Henry took Anne Berlin on his usual summer progress, away from stinking, unhealthy London. We know because a scrap of his accounts happened to have survived from August 1527. Henry's at Bewley in Hampshire, and he's showering Anne with expensive gifts, culminating with a ring. Henry was also telling Catherine that their marriage was invalid and that they were living in sin. So maybe Henry is anxious to get on with the divorce for the obvious personal reasons. On the other hand, Henry and Catherine still seem to get on perfectly well together. Meanwhile, in July of that year, 1527, Thomas Wolsey, Henry's right-hand man, has taken the very unusual step of crossing the Channel and visiting the French court in person. Some diplomatic game is definitely afoot. In fact, Wolsey wouldn't return until September. It was unprecedented. He met the French king, Francis I at Amiens, and they discussed launching a fleet to rescue the Pope was still a prisoner of the Spanish in Rome.
1: What we know about Wolsey's plans to negotiate a French marriage for Henry that summer with Princess Renée, Francis' first cousin, comes from his servant George Cavendish. He tells how Wolsey met a certain amount of French opposition. There were pamphlets against the planned engagement, thefts from his rooms, and a gallows scratched onto his window. Now, Cavendish isn't always a reliable witness, but a French marriage would have made complete sense given that the French and English were now allies. However, it couldn't happen
0: until Henry got his divorce from the Pope. Well, common sense suggested that if Henry wanted the Pope to annul his marriage to Catherine, he'd have to wait until the Italian situation improved and the Pope was free from the Spanish. But suddenly, in August 1527, with Wolsey still in France, Henry dispatched his secretary, William Knight, on a madcap mission to Rome. He rarely, if ever, took any major decisions without Wolsey, but this was an astonishing exception.
1: We look briefly at the documents Knight was carrying in our first discussion in this series. They explained to the Pope that Henry wanted an annulment of his marriage to Catherine and permission to marry a young woman who he was already sleeping with. He admits he'd also slept with her sister, so he can only mean Anne Boleyn. If necessary, Henry explained, the Pope should allow him to marry this new woman as well as Catherine. Now, even if the Pope hadn't been the prisoner of the Spanish, this would have been mad. Most historians just assume Henry was lovesick. But maybe he was playing some diplomatic game.
0: In August 1527, with his chief minister, Wolsey away in France, negotiating a French marriage for him, Henry made an extraordinary move. He sent his secretary, William Knight, to ask the Pope, who was then a prisoner of the Spanish in Rome, for permission to marry a woman he was already sleeping with. Well Henry instructed Knight to get to Rome as quickly as possible, he wasn't even to stop in France to consult Wolsey. Historians have tried to claim that Henry was so hopelessly in love with Anne he didn't want Wolsey to know. But it made sense for Knight to skip awkward meetings in France if Wolsey was trying to negotiate a marriage with a French princess. In the event, Wolsey quietly waylaid Knight at Compiègne, out of sight of the French court. Even before Clement's captivity, it had required contacts, guile and a lot of cash just to gain an audience with the Pope. Wolsey therefore tried to delay Knight he set up the proper channels of communication. Following Henry's orders, however, Knight ignored him and pressed on towards Rome.
1: What on earth was Henry up to? And what had he sent Knight into? 16th century Italy was a chaos of independent cities and principalities, and in wartime 1527 it was infested with unruly mercenaries and bandits. At Foligno, Knight was warned that if he tried to go to Rome without a safe conduct from the Pope, He'd be, quotes, in jeopardy of life and goods. But he rode on. And when he finally reached Rome in November 1527, he found himself creeping into a city, bristling with drunken soldiers, and hiding in a house that turned out to be occupied by hostile Spaniards. The Venetian diarist Marino Sanuto recorded that the Pope's confinement was absolute, and that it was only possible to send messengers in and out of the Castel Sant'Angelo using children, who, quotes got past the guards like little beggars. Knight, in fact, found a way to pass the message to Clement through the chamberlain of a
0: Venetian cardinal. But he was just too late. On the 26th of November, Pope Clement had done a deal with Charles V and his captors. In a nutshell, he would probably get his papal lands back if he behaved himself. Well, now, faced with Henry's outrageous demand, Pope Clement did the only thing he could do if he wanted to keep the English on side, but without upsetting the Spanish. He smuggled out a reply, offering to give Henry his permission to marry Anne once they'd sorted out an annulment of his marriage with Catherine in the proper way.
1: Well, what else could Henry have expected? Clement also warned Knight that he'd been detected by the Spanish commander and he should get out of town pronto if he wanted to stay alive. In December 1527, Charles finally allowed the Pope to go free. It promised to be a rather humiliating release. But actually, the day before, Pope Clement slipped out of Rome disguised as a peddler. His disguise was helped somewhat by the extremely large and unpapal beard that he'd grown in captivity. But the Spanish king still had an iron grip on him. He wouldn't give Rome back to Clement unless he did what he commanded. The Spanish were also the only ones offering to help Clement and his Medici relations defeat the rebels in Florence so that they could have their city back. None of this was on offer unless the Pope behaved himself. Clement headed north to hole up in a derelict old palace in the fortified city of Orvieto.
0: Among his first visitors in Orvieto was William Knight. Henry was, he reported, grateful that Clement was willing to help in his divorce. What Knight proposed was that Clement give Woolsey permission to decide the case in England. Well, Clement hummed and hawed for days and days amid the fallen ceilings and broken chairs. Letting Woolsey decide it might get him off the hook of upsetting the Spanish. Uh, But as we've seen, Woolsey couldn't just go and decide the case on his own. He'd need Clement's permission to hear it. So Clement couldn't tell the Spanish that he'd had nothing to do with it.
1: In the end, contrary to the story usually told about Clement, He bent over as far as he could to help Henry. Yes, Wolsey had his permission to hear the case.
0: Oh, well, so well and good. Uh, But then knight up the stakes. The Pope had, after all, left himself a wriggly way out. If, when Wolsey decided against Catherine, she would be able to appeal. And that appeal would still go to the Pope. If the Spanish army was still occupying Italy, Clement would be able to uphold her appeal. If not, then he could uphold Wolsey's decision. All that would be months and months away, and hopefully everything would be easier by then. Clement was buying himself time. So now, Knight asked the Pope to let Wolsey hear the case without the possibility of an appeal to the Pope afterwards. Well, Clement didn't turn the idea down flat. He referred it to his canon lawyers, and they turned it down flat. However hard the English tried to bribe them, they were unmovable. It was against canon law, the law of the Church. It simply could not be done. End of discussion. In fact, with just one short-lived lapse, this would be Pope Clement's position until his death.
1: The position was already clear by January 1528. Had Henry needed an excuse to declare himself head of the church in England, he now had it. But for the rest of 1528, Henry kept on sending messages to the Pope, pretty much asking for the same old thing. The Pope should commission a trial in England without appeal. And he kept getting the same answer. So what was going on?
0: Throughout 1528, Henry and Woolsey went on sending messengers to the Pope, making impossible demands on him, tying him up in theological and legal knots. They kept on asking Clement, in particular, to allow Woolsey to decide the divorce case in England without any possibility that Catherine could appeal against the decision to the Pope. Well, right from the start, in January 1528, the Pope's lawyers had ruled that out, and their position never changed.
1: But instead of declaring himself head of the church in England and telling Woolsey to get on with the case, Henry went on repeating this impossible demand. Now, historians have long suggested that all this was, well, just sensible on Henry's part. After all, he couldn't risk the case ending up in Rome. It would be demeaning, and with the Spanish hiding behind every pillar, he'd be bound to lose. But when you take a wider view of what was going on in 1528, it becomes clear that Henry's repeated demands were the opposite of sensible. It had been obvious ever since Christmas 1527 that Clement and his advisers were never going to give Wolsey the power to decide the case without appeal. It was against canon law.
0: Asking Clement over and over again was never going to move him an inch. Worse than that, as we've seen, Henry and his theologians now began insisting that the case had to be decided on the theological interpretation of certain awkward and ambiguous texts from Leviticus. Well, taking this Leviticus route meant accusing a previous pope of giving Henry and Catherine permission to marry when he had no power to, and there was no way Clement or any other pope, present or future, would ever agree to that. What makes this even more ridiculous is that had Henry wanted to get a divorce from Catherine, there was a much simpler way to do it. Cardinal Wolsey had come up with a brilliant and perfectly legal way out. It all had to do with the technicality in marriage law.
1: Catherine had always maintained that her marriage to Henry's brother, Arthur, had never been consummated. She always claimed that she'd still been a virgin when Henry married her. In fact, as she reminded him, Henry had
0: boasted loudly about it at the time. Now, as Woolsey pointed out, according to church law, a marriage did not exist until it was consummated. In fact, in church law, it's still the case. So in church law, Catherine had never in fact been married to Henry's brother, Arthur, at all. But that still didn't mean that Henry could have married Catherine without papal permission, because Catherine had been formally engaged to Henry's brother when she was just 12 and he 11. And in early modern law, an engagement was as serious a contract as marriage.
1: Now, and here comes the clever part. Woolsey therefore correctly pointed out that the Pope's dispensation to allow Catherine to marry Henry had only referred to her previous marriage. And, said the Cardinal, that didn't cut mustard. It wasn't good enough. Technically, there had, as Catherine herself admitted, never been a previous marriage. It hadn't been consummated. What the Pope should have issued was a dispensation to allow her to marry, not despite her previous marriage, but despite her previous engagement. But he hadn't. He'd been misinformed. He'd never been told Catherine was still a virgin. And it wasn't the Pope's fault.
0: So, technically the dispensation allowing Henry to marry Catherine was ineffective. And their marriage was null and void in church law. Henry was free to marry a French princess or whoever he wanted. Nobody was to blame. Game, set and end of a very awkward match. Well, this, Wolsey's idea, was a brilliant, elegant solution to Henry's divorce. It got everybody off the hook on a technicality.
1: But Henry refused to use it. Instead, he went on writing abstruse arguments about Old Testament texts, spending so long on it all that he wrote to Anne that it was giving him headaches. Henry turned down the easy route and instead adopted the impossible
0: one. What's even more striking than Henry's doubly, trebly, impossible demands, however, is that as 1528 went on, he no longer needed to go on making them. French armies under the Vicomte de Lautrec began to get the upper hand against the Spanish in Italy. In February 1528, Lautrec liberated Rome. And by the end of April, he pinned the Spanish down in Naples. In June 1528, the Spanish were desperate for a breathing space and they needed to reopen trade. So they signed a peace treaty with Henry and the English.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: really extraordinary that historians don't discuss this peace treaty more. It alters everything we think we know about Henry's divorce. The peace treaty with the Spanish presented Henry with the golden opportunity to get his divorce done on whatever grounds he chose. Not even to worry about Catherine appealing to Rome. Look, even if she did, the Spanish wouldn't back her. Why would they risk their newly signed peace with England? Henry would almost certainly have won the case.
1: But still Wolsey and the King didn't move to hear the case. Instead, they began sending thinly veiled messages to the Pope that Henry would leave the Roman Church if the Pope didn't agree to their completely impossible and increasingly unnecessary demands. (laughs) As 1528 went on, the military situation in Italy improved and Henry had the perfect opportunity to get his divorce done. But he did nothing except begin to threaten the Pope that he was thinking about leaving the Church of Rome. So was Henry dragging his divorce out so that he could
0: find an excuse to seize the Church? Not necessarily. We should look at his threat more closely. In March 1528, Henry's messengers had turned up yet again at the old palace in Norvieto where the Pope was sheltering from the Spanish. This time, they presented him with a thick book that detailed Henry's contorted theological case. Then they informed the Pope that unless he met Henry's impossible demands, quotes, the King's Highness would do without him. But Henry had made no preparations whatever for separating the English Church from Rome. He wouldn't even begin to do that for another two years.
1: All Henry's escalating demands and threats did was raise the stakes another notch. Now he was talking about creating a split in Christendom. Or should we say another split? Because it was exactly in these years, in the middle of the 1520s, that German theologians, notably one Martin Luther, were conducting a furious and increasingly political quarrel with Rome. From 1525, it had led them to break away entirely and establish new churches, what we now know as the Protestant churches. It was the worst split that ever hit the Western church, so serious that it has still not been healed 500 years later.
0: So in March 1528, the prospect of a split with England was impossible for Clement to contemplate, especially if there was the slightest possibility that the English might take their French allies with them. By talking about a split, Henry was only making his difficult case more difficult to solve all Clement could do was to issue yet another commission, his permission, for Wolsey to decide the case in England. This time he was to hear it alongside the new cardinal protector for England, the Italian cardinal Lorenzo Campeggio. Now you can imagine the Pope thinking the English ought to be happy with that. Cardinal Campeggio might be expected to be favourable to Henry, not least because Henry was paying him a great deal of money out of English church revenues.
1: When Henry's envoy got home with this new commission, the king called Anne Boleyn in and made an elaborate show of looking delighted. But still, Henry did nothing about getting the case heard. In fact, what historians have not pointed out is that the next day, once Anne was out of the way, Henry got down to business with Wolsey and his other advisers to plan the next mission to the Pope. They were going to put their impossible demands to the Pope yet again. What is most significant is that Henry showed no sign at all of any disappointment. Indeed, wrote Edward Fox, who'd brought the commission back from the Pope and was at the meeting, quotes, the king was highly
0: satisfied. Highly satisfied? Three times in law the Pope told the English to get on with hearing the case and three times the English refused unless there was no possibility of an appeal, which was never going to happen. And this despite an extremely favourable military situation. Meanwhile, Henry was highly satisfied. What on earth was he up to?
1: Well, we can straight away forget the idea that he was just desperate to marry his mistress and have a male heir. Henry had plenty of opportunities to do just that in 1528. As the Spanish army was rolled up, being defeated in Italy, a window opened when Henry could have got his case sorted with a very good chance of success. And Wolsey was standing by with excellent legal arguments that got everyone off the hook on a technicality. It just needed Henry's green light. But he didn't give it.
0: We also have to put on the back burner the notion that in all these months, Henry was looking for an excuse, working his way toward what historians call imperium, that he was trying to find a route to make himself all-powerful, taking control of the English Church. These repeated missions to the Pope were getting him nowhere. He had his answer in January 1528, and had he chosen, he could have taken it then as the reason to begin the long process of taking control of the Church. He could, for example, have passed an Act of Parliament simply to prevent appeals to Rome. There was already a medieval precedent of sorts in the Statute of Primenere and he would pass an Act that did exactly that in 1533.
1: Which makes it all the more intriguing that according to Edward Fox, Henry was highly satisfied with the way things were going back in 1528. He was making no progress on his divorce. He was making no progress on Imperium. So what was there to be satisfied about?
0: There is, however, one last line of inquiry. This whole divorce saga had begun as a result of Henry's foreign policy. What we need to ask, therefore, and what historians don't usually ask, is whether there might be some foreign policy reason for the ludicrous series of missions impossible on which Henry was sending his messengers in 1528.
1: Throughout 1528, Henry kept asking the Pope to allow his divorce case to be heard in England with no possibility of appeal to the Pope in Rome. And the Pope kept on turning him down. Henry's divorce wasn't getting anywhere. He wasn't making any progress on imperium either, which is what many historians now believe to have been his main reason for the divorce. So what was Henry's game in the long months of
0: 1528? Well, at each stage in this divorce story, we've discovered that it was Henry's foreign policy that counted for more than anything else. So the question is, did Henry's foreign policy make any progress in 1528 through all this bizarre series of missions to the Pope?
1: And straight away, the answer is obviously yes, it did. Henry had two interrelated foreign policy objectives. The first was to contain the dangerously bloated and growing power of Spain. The second... Was to cut some kind of figure in Europe, despite England having a very marginal position and extremely meagre resources. He had to achieve all this with an empty treasury and virtually no army. As we've seen, splitting with Catherine and the Spanish alliance that she stood for therefore made complete sense. Henry mattered much more to the French than to the Spanish. Together, the English and the French could try to battle Spain's creeping dominance. Henry's divorce and his alliance with the French were always inextricable. In 1529, Wolsey would tell the French ambassador that it had been, quote, above all other things, the support of the French that had got Henry started on the divorce in the first place. Now that's something you don't often hear. And as we saw, Henry began proceedings against Catherine in May 1527, just weeks after signing his treaty with the French. According to historian Garrett Mattingly, who wrote the classic biography of Catherine of Aragon, she always believed that the whole divorce business, quotes, had occurred to Wolsey as the best method of safeguarding his pro-French policy by removing from Henry's side the King of Spain's chief friend in England,
0: herself, and substituting a French princess. But the French ambassador, Jean de Boulay, adds a very significant remark of his own. He says that if the divorce were ever sorted out, the chances were that the English would join forces with the Spanish once again. After all, the Spanish had plenty of money and all their quarrels would be over. The same, of course, was true if Henry ever decided to give the whole divorce business up. Well, suddenly it becomes very obvious why the French kept telling Henry that their representatives with the Pope were doing their best to get the Pope on side to get his divorce. The more they appeared to help, the more Henry was tied to the alliance. On the other hand, the longer the saga went on, the better it suited the French. Henry was being used by the French.
1: The French were also using Henry's divorce to keep the Pope out of Spanish hands. Ever since his imprisonment in Rome, Pope Clement had had every reason to ally with the Spanish. It looked like the best way to get his papal lands back and the best way for his family, the Medici, to regain control of Florence.
0: Clement also needed Charles V, the Spanish king's help, to suppress the growing Protestant revolt in Germany and also, as we'll see, to face the very real threat of invasion by the Muslim Turks. It would have been very easy indeed for Clement to ignore the French and English altogether. In November 1527, he signed an agreement with the Spanish while he was still in prison. January 1528, he declared that, unless he got his lands back, he would have to adhere cesare, ally with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He tearfully repeated the same directly to Henry's men in April. Quote, His sole hope of life was from the Emperor. He means the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. He confided to the envoy from Siena that he'd already had talks with Charles' representatives. Quote, These people wished me to make the Emperor master of Italy, and I shall do it.
1: The Pope ruled over a very significant part of northern Italy. He also had enormous moral authority the French and the English had to find a way to keep him out of a Spanish alliance if they were ever to contain the Spanish threat. And Henry's divorce turned out to be the perfect manoeuvre. If the Pope bowed to Spanish pressure and turned Henry down completely, then the English, and perhaps the French too, would begin to mutter about breaking away from Rome altogether. As we've seen in 1528, Henry began to mutter exactly that.
0: So was Henry just being used by the French in order to create this alliance against the Spanish and keep the Pope on side? Well, not really. This whole business suited Henry very well too. All this rhetoric about doing without the Pope now makes much more sense, as does Knight's absurd, helter-skelter, death-defying dash to Rome in November 1527, and Henry's repeatedly impossible demands, and also Henry's, quote, satisfaction that the whole business was dragging on and on.
1: The longer he kept badgering the Pope and left Clement tearfully, agonisingly dithering and changing his mind, twisting his handkerchief round and round as he did when he was upset, unable to meet Henry's outrageous requests, then the longer he prevented the Pope going over to the Spanish once and for all. And the longer Henry's
0: campaign succeeded, the longer he could cut some kind of significant figure in Europe. In May 1528, as Henry's messenger Edward Fox was leaving Orvieto to return to England, The ambassador from Mantua took him aside. He wanted to explain the Pope's predicament. his holiness told me, said the ambassador, that he knows if he comes to any resolution he will make a perpetual enemy of either Charles V or of Henry. However, I understand that he will drag things out as far as he can. Well, no wonder Henry was highly satisfied when Fox told him about it. Forcing the Pope to delay making any commitment to the Spanish was the best possible outcome. Henry's diplomacy was working as well as a king with no cash could ever have hoped.
1: So this was never really to do with Anne Boleyn. In fact, during these months in 1528, Henry sent Anne home to Hever Castle and went on summer progress with Catherine alone. Henry's groom of the stool, who looked after the royal toilet, reported that every morning the king, quotes, "'Cometh from the Queen.'" They were plainly still sleeping together and went on sleeping together, according to more than one witness, at least into October 1528 and perhaps much longer. What was behind this long campaign was not trying to marry Anne instead of Catherine.
0: And at this stage, it also only appeared to be to do with Imperium. Instead, it very much looks as though what started back in 1524 as a foreign policy coup, the switching of alliance from the Spanish to the French, went on being useful to Henry primarily as a foreign policy campaign.
1: From November 1527 until July 1528, it worked a treat. The French army, with English backing, rolled the Spanish back. The Anglo-French alliance held firm. Clement remained undecided. Henry could even imagine for a few glorious months that he held some kind of balance of power in Europe. He slept with Anne Boleyn. He slept with Catherine. He was highly satisfied. (laughs)
0: Until, that is, the 13th of July, 1528. And then, again, everything suddenly began to change, as we'll see in the next part in this series on Henry VIII. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have
1: or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.